This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here for this week's interview episode with David Canfield. Hello, David. Hi, Katie. David, we have just one interview this week uh, in our season of Emmy Abundance, but this is a really good one to really focus in on because you spoke to Elizabeth Moss, TV screen veteran in general, um, who still manages to surprise us and do something new, which is what she's doing on Shining Girls, which is on Apple TV Plus right now. Yeah, the, almost the whole season is now streaming. Uh, we spoke... Last week, uh, which was the occasion of the first episode she directed of the show, she directed two out of the total eight episodes. Uh, She's been getting more into directing lately. She also directs uh, pretty regularly now for The Handmaid's Tale. But yeah, it's a a very very different show from Handmaid's, and uh, she gives a really, really strong performance yet again. Yeah, I want you to tell me about it because honestly, in our in our period of so much TV to watch, which we talk about all the time, I have not gotten to Shining Girls yet, um, but you have recommended it to me highly, so... Sell me and everyone else listening. So the show is hard to talk about without <laughs> spoiling anything, as some of these are. Um, but she plays a journalist who... There are actually some similarities to, uh, to Invisible Man, uh, her, her horror film that she's also really great in from a few years ago. She's being tormented by some unknown male figure, and she begins to essentially find the reality around her changing moment to moment, era to era. So she's existing in multiple eras at once, and she's thrust into this very complicated mystery involving this assailant of sorts um, whose identity is not totally clear. Um, We can say that Jamie Bell plays a pivotal role (laughs) in the Ah, show. And and, um, her essentially, as a journalist, figuring out the mystery while also going back to her own trauma, her own experiences, to both solve it and to reach a place of healing for herself. I mean, we've seen Elizabeth Moss like take on kind of fearlessly these tough roles in a lot of different ways. She talked about Invisible Man, there's Top of the Lake, I mean, going back to Mad Men. Um, and The Handmaid's Tale still ongoing and uh, is kind of famously emotionally difficult, but it sounds like she's bringing something even stronger here or at least different. It's really intense. And I, I asked her about that because <laughs> she has not shied away from those parts. Mad Men... It's funny, you have this really great arc uh, in Peggy of a character who starts out uh, very meek and unassuming and trying to find her place in fundamentally man's world, a male space, and emerging really confident and assured by the end. 
And since that show, she's played extremely, I feel like, headstrong characters, but also characters who are put through enormous trials and and, um, struggles. And she said that coming into this one, uh, she's also an executive producer. She really helped develop the show from the very beginning. It's an adaptation of the Lauren Bukes novel. She wants that challenge. She's hungry for it. She's eager for it. And she does not shy away from that kind of material. Well, I am intrigued to steal myself for it, I think, uh, in our, you know, maybe watch this and then have a comedy queued up to watch on the side because that's how we get through this um, busy TV season we're in. (laughs) Um, But first, I'm excited to hear your interview with Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth Moss, thank you so much for being here. We're talking about your new, very exciting, very trippy show, Shining Girls which is currently airing weekly on Apple TV+. But you're currently filming Handmaid's Tale Season 5, and I I would be remiss if I didn't start by asking you about the feeling filming right now. The show has always been at the heart of uh, the zeitgeist, sometimes for unfortunate reasons. And of course, with uh, what we've heard about Roe v. Wade, um, don't have definitive answers, but over the last few weeks, um, I'm curious how that news was taken on set. And what that feeling was like, I mean, the show was trending on Twitter for a few days just because of that news. Yeah, it was a bit somber on set when we first started. Um, but then, you know, you have to sort of get to work mm-hmm. and and do the day. Even just today, our director, Eva Vives, who's doing episodes five and six, she was sending me video of a, a rally going on just down the street and sort of things that they were chanting and saying that were disturbing and saddening. Um, It's always a weird thing for us. It's not a pleasant thing. It's not something that gets us excited when there are these parallels and when your character is used as a example of something that's happening in real life. You know, a picture of your character is used as an example of something that's happening in real life. It's not anything we take any pleasure in at all. Um, And it's a very strange thing. But I mean, I think that it does make us happy and proud that we are doing a show that we feel is relevant, that we're doing a show that we feel says things that need to be said, that speaks to a discussion and speaks to, I think, how a lot of us making the show feel about that discussion. A lot of what we do is just for entertainment. And that's all great. And I think that's actually completely valid. It's nice just to have something that's entertaining sometimes Mm -hmm. to just take your mind off the world and your life. But it is, I think, gratifying when you're involved in something that is entertaining, but also feels like you're hopefully saying something helpful and intelligent about what's going on in the world. I wish it would stop being so damn relevant, though. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) (laughs) I I believe it. Um, To your point, though, I mean, there must be a kind of charge in in knowing how this show has resonated and been so relevant over the years and um, seeing how people have responded to the show over the years and commentary it's had. Does it fuel you in a way? And now you you wear so many hats on that show and on the show Shining Girls. I imagine there's a lot of creative fuel there. Absolutely. I mean, even the other day, the day after the the leak happened, we were on set, and you know, I said, "All right, well, let's get to work." You know, and it feels it does feel gratifying to be making something that you feel like is saying something 
that perhaps people should be listening to right now. But I also think that our relevancy is all due to Margaret Atwood, you know, the the book mm -hmm. that she wrote in 1985, which was a while ago now, remains relevant and remains important. And we owe a lot of that to her. And she has talked about how history is cyclical and she has talked about how these things repeat themselves. And I think that's very, very true. So it fuels us, but I would say I'd be totally happy to not have the fuel and just generate that fuel on our own. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, well, talking about both that show and Shining Girls, I'll put you on the spot a little bit. Uh, in the Hollywood Reporter's review of Shining Girls, they said, no single actor in the past 25 years has a more reliable television track record than Elizabeth Moss. Just quite a line. <laughs> That is very, very kind. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll phrase it this way. I mean, we have seen in the shows that you've done over, in that time span a really strong track record, both, I would say, in your performances, but also in the quality of the shows around them. And taste can be hard and finding those kinds of projects can be hard. Can you speak to that side of it, just the finding that kind of material and, and what that process has looked like for you? Has it been difficult? Has it required saying no a lot of times? Yeah, it's interesting because it's not, it's certainly not something I ever set out to do. I don't know how you even can set out to do something like that. For me, I just, whether it's film or television or theater, I just try to pick the best material possible. And I don't know what it is that makes me think that that is the best thing for me to do at that time, it's it. There's no like formula. There's no like this is what I do, and I check these boxes, and then you're good to go. You got a good show. It's just not like that. It's it's um, it's something that's much more instinctive. It's something that's much more uh, having to do with all of the collaborators that you surround yourself with. I mean, and picking the best people to be a part of something, or you know, to be chosen by those people to be a part of something. So, yeah, I. Uh, I certainly never anticipated having that track record that you speak of. I just, I love television. That's the only thing I can kind of say is that I love TV. I watch a lot of stuff. It very much influenced me as an actor. Good television growing up. You know, Claire Danes doing My So-Called Life was the thing when I was like 13, 14 that showed me oh my God, you can act like that on TV. You know, you can have that quality of a performance on television. And then there were so many people after that that continued to inspire me. So I think I just, I love and appreciate television. So I, I tend to try to also find things that I feel like I would want to watch that I, I haven't seen that show, you know, and I, I would want to watch that show. And that's definitely a guiding, a guiding light, but yeah, it's a funny thing. It's not ever anything I anticipated. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> Here you are. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I believe this is the first show that you've really helped develop as an EP from 
its inception. What was that process like for you? The book is, I'm familiar with the book. It's changed up a lot here. Of course, you're working with Louisa, Michelle, and a lot of other folks as you're developing a new character for you to play, um, but you get that head start in a way. Yeah, actually, Handmaids was the first one that I was sort of involved in from the very beginning. Yeah, the only difference was like on Handmaids, it was already at Hulu, but I was the the first actor to be cast and then helped to do all the, the rest mm-hmm. of the hiring and casting and such from, from there. The difference with Shining Girls was only that it didn't have a home yet. When you're doing a TV show, the thing that I... One of the things I love about television so much is that you, if things go well, you have a uh, long running adventure ahead of you. Even if it's just one season, you're creating eight hours of material as opposed to two hours or whatever it is. Um, so for me, being an executive producer from the beginning is really important because it's a pretty big investment of time. It's a pretty big investment of your energy. So I very much prefer to be involved in in that from the very beginning, especially the older I get and the, the further along in my career, whatever you want to call it. You know, you work with different people and you 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 want to make sure you're getting the right people to come work on the new thing. And, you, you know, the hiring up and the crewing up is always really fun and interesting. So I love being involved from the very beginning. And, you know, I'm the person who's going to have to also be on set every day. So it's important to me to surround all of us with the best team possible. As someone who who loves TV and knows TV, allow me to go into the weeds a little bit. I'm just curious, given we're in such an interesting new frontier era of TV in a lot of ways, and this show's home is in many ways representative of that, as is Handmaid's on streaming. How did you find the process of thinking about the way it would be structured, the way it'd be rolled out, and the way you Apple would be a good partner for that kind of show? I was very excited about Apple TV Plus because it felt like they had this hunger and they had this need for new material. And I Hmm. have found that pretty much everything I've done has been at a home at a time when that was the case. It's, it's, I was just thinking that. It's so interesting. It's, It's one for one. Even West Wing with NBC, Mm -hmm. it's like there was nothing like that on NBC, right? And obviously Mad Men with AMC, Top of the Lake with uh, the Sundance Channel, Handmaid's Tale with Hulu. So every single big television project I've done has been for a place that has been like, what are we going to do? And they're open to new ideas because of that. They're not trying to chase the previous success that they just had. They're not trying to just copy what has worked for them. They are looking for a new idea. And they're, because of that, a bit braver, a bit bolder, and willing to take a little bit of a risk. And most of the time, the material that I choose and I'm involved in is a little bit of a risk. (laughs) So um, I was excited about Apple for that reason, because I felt like they were in the perfect place to take that risk and be bold and to do something that they hadn't done before and also have a really big appetite creatively for filmmakers and writers and you know obviously they were starting to work with a lot of really interesting people so i felt like creatively it was a really interesting place to be that said it's really so much about the material that you 
that you have. And they responded to this in the right way. And, and so they were kind of a, a clear home. Well, this is a, a character who's in a certain very particular level of peril in this show, uh, which we'll get into more. For you, Ad, I don't want to ask if it gets easier necessarily, um, but given that this is such an intense role and you've played many an intense role, <laughs> a few we've already mentioned, how have you found carrying them over your career? Has it gotten, have you developed strategies for that? What has, how has that evolved for you? The The biggest challenge is just looking for things that continue to challenge me. So I'm never looking to make it easier on myself. I'm I'm looking for things that I haven't done yet, uh, especially in the television space, because that has been where so much of my career has been and, and where people have seen me. So for me at this point, it's it's more about how do I make it harder? How do I find something that I haven't done yet? And what's great and such a gift is that there is so much good television out there. So yeah, of course, I sometimes get things that I'm not necessarily interested in or aren't for me or feel like I've kind of done this or I don't think there's anything in this character that I haven't done. But it is still completely possible for me to read something that I, and I, I just did recently, that I feel like, oh my God, this is definitely not something I've ever done before. And and it's just, there's, there's so many good writers who are writing in television now, you know? So anyway, so that's, that's more the challenge for me is how do I find things that make it harder, not easier? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, what was, I mean, Kirby's obviously a very challenging character. What was hardest about her? What was most exciting for you? I suppose what was hardest was playing somebody who is constantly as the as the audience's proxy feeling these changes and feeling these what we called shifts and feeling these things that that she's observing that happen but not being able to make a big deal out of it to anyone around her because then people are going to think she's crazy and that was the hardest thing so registering that showing that to the audience showing that there was some feeling or emotion about that thing changing but not being able to say anything you know because mm -hmm. that happens over and over and over and over yes. again in the show so that was the other challenge is how do i keep doing it how do i keep how do i keep rediscovering this how do i keep having this thing happen and and not get make it boring and just like oh my god just another change another shift happening what was really fun was getting like halfway through the season and like without spoiling anything but starting to be able to do something yes. about it you know like as opposed to just like receiving it and reacting but being able to actually then do something and 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 also being able to be vocal about what she was seeing and try to explain it and try to get somebody to understand it that really was fun for me so i was gonna let you guide me on <laughs> how in depth <laughs> to talk about this show um episode four uh, is very clarifying in a lot of ways uh, yeah. and we're Episode five is airing this week, which also marks your debut. So not only are you constantly challenging yourself with harder roles, but you're also directing these incredibly complicated projects. How did you come into this as a director? Obviously, you've directed yourself before in Handmaids, but now you have have that experience under your belt coming into a fresh project. What was that like for you? Especially with an episode where, as you say, you get a little bit of a little bit of room to sort of push that story forward. Mm hmm. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. 
It was a challenge for me because I know Handmaids so well. So mm -hmm. when I started on Handmaids, we were already in season four when I started directing. And it wasn't that big of a leap for me to start directing on the show because I'm so involved in everything on the show and have worked so closely with our directors in the past. So it felt like a very natural transition to make a sidestep rather than a big leap forward. With Shining Girls, it was harder because it was a new show. It was a new tone. It was a new world we were building. It was, an, it was new people I was working with. So that was definitely the challenge there. The other challenge was that we basically block shot the whole thing. Like we, oh, wow. yeah, not purely, but, um, but almost, um, you know, if we were at the planetarium, we would end up shooting a lot of stuff at the planetarium from all of the episodes. Uh, if we were at somebody's house, you know, we'd shoot a lot of stuff mm. there. So I was directing like week two, which was crazy. So I was prepping and directing the entire shoot. So I didn't, I never had the like 21 days of prep or whatever you get. And then you start shooting and then you're done. I was literally like prepping, 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 shoot, 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 prep, 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 shoot, 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 like throughout the entire season. So just keeping track of everything was like trying to figure out time travel. It was as difficult as like quantum physics. It was like <laughs> just trying to figure out where we were in the season and what was happening, what had happened and what was coming and what hadn't happened yet was it's always a challenge to do that. But on this show, which can be a little confusing on its best day. Like <laughs> it was like, you can't even imagine. So that was a big, that was a very big challenge for all of us, I think. But I came in, we got Michelle McLaren for the first block and then Dana Reed to be our producing director and do the rest of the season, four episodes. So I got to follow in those women, those women's footsteps. You know, I got to really just kind of look at what they were doing, look at the tone they were setting, look at the way that they were setting up the show and just try to build on that to the best of my ability. And to an extent, probably you were kind of filmmaking team, right? Because so yeah. much of this show too is about perspective and who's seeing what and what you're seeing. And so the block shotting makes a lot of sense in that context. Completely, completely, it totally does. And we were very much a team. You know, sometimes when you're shooting something, you may overlap with another director because you're at a location and it's just convenient for, you know, you both to shoot on that day or whatever. But this was like all three of us were pretty much going the whole time, mainly Dana and I. But it would be, you know, Michelle would do a scene and then I would do a scene and then Michelle would do a scene and then I would do a scene on the same day. It was just very, very connected. We were yeah, very, very much a team. Hmm. So Handmaids, you know your character very well. You're coming in as a director in season four, whereas with this, you're coming into a character and as a director at the same time. How did it impact you as an actor? Did you find it helpful? Did you find it a lot to juggle? <laughs> It's funny because I actually think that I am more prepared on work that I'm directing than just acting mm. because I have th thought so much more about it. When I'm acting, I don't necessarily do research. You know, I'm not a method actor. I don't. I think about it and I talk about it with the director and I do all of that stuff, but I'm very instinctive. Um, 
when I'm, you can't be instinctive as a director the whole time. People will get very sure. mad at you. Uh, <laughs> unless you're like Steven Spielberg and then I'm sure his instincts are just like perfect all the time. Right. But, you know, as a new director, you can't really be like super instinctive. You have to be more prepped and planned. So because of that, I wind up thinking about it so much more than I normally would. And I'm also thinking about all the different things. I'm thinking about all the characters. I'm thinking about all the scenes. So it's, I have a much more global understanding of the, of the episodes. So I find that I, when I hit an episode that I'm directing, I actually know so much more about what I'm supposed to be doing as an actor. It's really, it's, it's interesting. I never thought it would be like that. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't necessarily either. And is there also an element of of know, knowing the show more holistically, like to take an example, this act of watching, which is a tool at the disposal of a villain here. And it's very, it's a terrifying tool to watch, to experience for you, for your character. How do you key into that as a director? And, and how does that make you perhaps see the show in a different way as you're, as you have to consider those elements and, and the, the visual language of the show? Yeah. I mean, for me, um, the visual language is is so important. The tricky thing is always to balance your own visual language and your own style with the style of the show. And mm. that was something that was new for me on Shining Girls. My visual language is very, very close to what we do on Handmaid's Tale. So there isn't a big leap there for me. It's the, the way I think we should shoot something or the perspective that I think we should shoot something from is very much what the show is. Then you go into a new show, which is a new tone and has a new language to it. And you have to go, okay, now I'm an episodic director, you know, now I'm going, okay, what is this show and how do I adapt what I do to this show? And that was a new kind of, uh, skill I had to, to learn, you know, of, of, even though I might want to shoot something this way, what's actually the style of the show and making sure that I'm shooting something in the style of what this show is, mm -hmm. you know? So that was a kind of a new experience for me as well. What can you, I suppose, tease about, you know, say we're at the end of episode five here. What can you say about the last three episodes of the show as a kind of you know, without spoiling anything. I don't mean perhaps spoiling what came before, depending on where <laughs> listeners are. It's a hard, it's a hard show to talk about guys. <laughs> you know, it really yeah. is. It's like, uh, it's impossible. It's so impossible. I'll, I'll rephrase. So where are we going and why do you feel good about where the show ends? Let's, let's leave yeah. it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, like I said, like, I really love the back half of this season and I loved it very much as an actor because I do feel like it starts to open up and you start to have, as an actor, as Kirby, I felt like I had the ability to vocalize things. I had the ability to say things that I had been wanting to say and act things that I had been wanting to act. And I feel like she starts to gain a strength and starts to gain a power and a voice that she hasn't had in a very long time. And she starts to become a person who is willing to do whatever it takes to stop this man from having control over her existence. And um, that was a very fun and exciting thing for me to play. Uh, you know, I can also say that you'll, I don't think this is a spoiler, this is a tease. Um, <laughs> you, you are going to definitely learn more about Harper. You're going to learn more about him as a character and his psyche. And uh, 
the last two episodes, man, I mean, I, it's the second time I've done a penultimate episode. I did episode nine last year and there's something about them that I really love because the last episode is like, you know, that's the one that's like sending us home, but the penultimate one is often the one where like shit really hits the fan. And so I got to do that in episode seven. I got to do the, the fan, the shit hitting the fan stuff. So that was really fun. And then, yeah, the finale is just very, it's just satisfying. It's just, just satisfying. It just gets you, it go, okay. You get what you have been wanting to watch, wanting to see for seven episodes. So in my opinion. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'll ask you one last Handmaid's question before we wrap. I spoke with Bruce Miller after the after season four wrapped, and he described production on that season as a kind of Herculean feat almost. How does season five compare in the sheer making of it? It's very interesting because it's almost harder, and I, I can let me explain why because last season things were very black and white as far as the pandemic. Yeah. We, no one was going anywhere. Everything was shut down. So we had this bubble and there was no gray area. It was like, I mean, look, it was incredibly challenging, obviously, um, <laughs> unbelievably. But, but I get what you mean, yeah. You know what I mean? It was like, you just, you know, there's no option. You can't go anywhere. You're just going to work. And this season's a lot harder because the world is opening back up and people are living their lives and that's incredible and, and, and a wonderful thing after all this time. But we are still trying to operate something safely and keeping everyone safe and keeping everyone healthy. So we're walking this sort of line between the world and, and making the show and balancing that is actually is, is difficult. Um, it presents a whole new set of challenges as we sort of, as, as we morph along with the world into whatever this new place is that we are going into, um, which is hopefully a, 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 you know, a good place. So it's been, it's been not easier. (laughs) (laughs) It has been not easier. I, 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 I have to say, but that's compounded by the fact that we have a lot of locations a lot of locations, like in a good way, like creatively, that's an awesome thing. Production wise, it's obviously a challenge. I think we've been in the studio for two days in the last two episodes, which is hard. So we are out on the road a lot. Oh, wow. um, and that has also been challenging. But what are you going to do? It's season five. You can't just 
sit inside the house. You got to get out there. You got to go. You got to go. You got to go. You got to. June's got to get out there. What are you going to do? Bigger and better. Bigger and better. Exactly. Exactly. Got to give. Got to give the audience what they want. And I think we're we're doing a really good job of that. That does it for today's interview episode. We'll be back on Thursday with our regular roundtable conversation. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find more on uh, David's interview with Elizabeth Moss and much more. You can follow us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. How about you, David? David Canfield, 97. And you can also continue to sign up to text with us at subtext. Join subtext.com slash LittleGoldMen or text 917-563-4588. This week's episode, as always, was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz, um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. Yeah, we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink lover. room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mao. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.